Welcome. You're listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Visit us on the web at vedanta.org. Om Tadikam Smaramas Tadikam Hajamaha Tadikam Jagat Sakshi Rupam Namamaha Sadekam Nidhanam Niralam Bamisham Bhavamodhipotam Sharanyam Rajamaha Om Shanti 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 On that alone do we meditate, that alone do we worship, to that alone the witness of the universe do we bow. To that one who is our sole eternal support, the self-existent Lord, the raft to safety across the ocean of this world, do we come for refuge. Om, peace, peace, peace. Good morning. I'm very glad to be here in Santa Barbara again. And our topic today is birth, rebirth, and no birth. Let's start with birth. All of us are born. All mammals are born, in fact, and some other animals too, emerging from the mother's body, fully developed, not fully grown, but fully developed and able to exist independently. This is a moment pivotal in the life of both the mother and the child, of course. And uh, it's quite amazing to study the biology of the gestation and the birth of the child. In fact, I recently learned a fascinating thing that the unborn child, until the moment of birth, has a hole in the heart between the left and right atriums. And there's also two ducts. And this hole and these ducts reroute the blood flow so it doesn't go through the lungs because there's no air in the lungs. There's only fluid in the lungs. So the blood doesn't need to go through the lungs, doesn't need to go much through the liver. So these reroute the blood flow. Within minutes of birth, that hole closes up and those ducts also dry up. They're called the, the hole is called the foramen ovale and the ductus arteriosus and venosus. They close right after birth. How amazing is the biology? So this, of course, birth is surely everyone here who is a mother knows that it's the most memorable events of a mother's life are those times when she has given birth to her children. And yet it's strange then that we ourselves don't remember the event. We don't remember our own birth. In rare cases, maybe we do. This is called infantile amnesia. Mostly people don't remember anything before the age of three to four years old. It's like a, a blank. We don't remember it. Though younger children, young children under the age of 10, often may remember much further back. But as they grow older, as we grow older, we forget. We can't, in fact, remember probably what we had for breakfast last week and maybe not what we had for breakfast yesterday. Yet, of course, we don't doubt that it happened. We don't doubt that we were born. Everybody was born. And we don't doubt our own existence. If we think, uh, do I exist? Well, yes. That much we don't doubt. I don't doubt that I exist. So when did that existence begin? When did our existence begin? At birth? That's what modern science says. Modern science says our existence began, well, maybe a little bit before birth, in nine months before birth. And uh, it starts to take shape at birth, and it continues until death, and then it's all over. Between these two markers, birth and death, the whole of our life, all of experience, everything we experience, our whole existence is bounded by these two points, birth and death. And yet it's impossible to really conceive of our own non-existence. If we think, well, when I die, I won't be there, I, how... We can't step beyond this feeling of I, that I won't be there. How can that be? Now, not only uh, science, but also many religions uh, believe 
or hold that we, who we are, though religions won't say we have an end, but they will say we had a beginning. The beginning of our existence began at birth or at conception, created by God. The great philosopher Schopenhauer made an interesting comment about this. He wrote, we're an Asiatic, means someone from India, from Asia, we're an Asiatic to ask me for a definition of Europe. I should be forced to answer him, it is that part of the world completely dominated by the outrageous and incredible delusion that a man's birth is his beginning and that he is created out of nothing. That's the prevalent view of the Western religions. Swami Vivekananda expands on this idea. He says, sometimes people get frightened at the idea. And the superstition is so strong that thinking men even believe that they are the outcome of nothing. And then, with the grandest logic, try to deduce the theory that although they have come out of zero, they will be eternal ever afterwards. <laughs> Those that come out of zero will have to go back to zero, he says. Neither you, nor I, nor anyone present has come out of zero, nor will go back to zero. We have been existing eternally and will exist, and there is no power under the sun or over the sun which can undo your or my existence or send us back to zero. But this is, of course, the Vedantic viewpoint, the Eastern viewpoint, the Indic viewpoint. The traditions coming out of India, Vedanta, Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, Sikhism, accept that we have an infinite past and we have an infinite future. Wordsworth puts it so poetically. Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting, and trailing clouds of glory do we come from God, who is our home. Swami Vivekananda makes an amusing comment on this. He says, trailing clouds of glory do we come, says the poet. Not all of us come as trailing clouds of glory, however. Some of us come as trailing black fogs. There can be no doubt about that. Black fogs. He's talking, of course, about karma, the resultant of all our past deeds. Some of us seem to come into this world as uh, we see young children who are so saintly and so lovely, and they grow up to be fine human beings. And others from childhood, they're terrors. And maybe they don't grow up quite in the same. We, we come dragging black fogs, some of us. We do. And this is... Not the first time we have been here. We have built up that own black fog ourselves through our actions, our deeds, in previous visits to this plane of existence, previous births. Swami Vivekananda called it reincarnation. Before that, I think the term mostly was metempsychosis or transmigration of souls. Vivekananda liked the term reincarnation, and that seems to be the term most widely used today. This idea that we have lived before in human bodies and will likely live again in human bodies is widely accepted as true by students of Vedanta. In fact, it can be almost said to be an axiom, not really questioned. It's taught in the scriptures. It's causally connected with this idea of karma, that every action has a reaction. If we put our hand into fire, it will get burned. If we do certain actions, it will have certain results on our own psyche, on our own mind, and in our life, carrying over not only in this life, but from a previous life and into a future life. It's not exactly a tenet of faith. We don't say, well, okay, if you want to be a Vedanta student, you have to believe in reincarnation, check, you have to believe. In... There's, there's no list of, of uh, tenets of faith in Vedanta, but... It's widely accepted. We often call it a theory which goes so far to explain so many questions. Like, why do people differ so much in their characters, even coming from the same family, raised by the same parents in the same environment? Why are some people born with so many advantages and some people through no fault of their own are born with so many disadvantages? So it's a kind of axiom. And Vivekananda discusses it quite a lot and makes an effort to establish the truth of it. 
And of course, as I mentioned, all the traditions of India accept reincarnation. And some other traditions also. The Kabbalah tradition of Judaism accepts it. Certain sects of Shia Islam, uh, the Druze of Lebanon, it's a separate religion which is related to Islam, but, but quite different also, the Druze in Lebanon. Certain Native American traditions and tradition in Nigeria, tribal traditions in Nigeria and other places. However, outside the Indic traditions, karma doesn't seem to play a role. The, the Native American understanding didn't have this karmic part of the understanding. So uh, what's the evidence? What's the evidence that this is true, that we do come back? First of all, there's scriptural evidence. The Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita both refer again and again to reincarnation. For instance, Yama tells the young seeker Nachiketa, Yama, who is death himself, in the Kata Upanishad, he says, Samraya pratibhati balam pramadyantam vit the hereafter, he says, never reveals itself to a person devoid of discernment, devoid of a keen mind, who is heedless and perplexed by the delusion of wealth. This world alone exists, he thinks, and there is no other which is what most people think. This world alone exists and there is no other. Again and again he comes under my sway. Again and again he comes under my sway means death's sway. It means he dies again and again from birth to death, again to death. And Arjuna and Sri Krishna in their conversation in the Bhagavad Gita, their glorious conversation, Sri Krishna tells him, Bahuni me vyatitani janmani tavacharjana Many, many, O Arjuna, are the births both you and I have taken. But I know them all. You do not remember them. So we have this first source of evidence. It's the scriptures, which are really the reports of the illumined souls, the reports of uh, men and women who had realized the truth. In the yoga tradition, the yoga philosophy, the fear of death is given as evidence for previous lives. How could we be afraid of death unless we had experienced it before? So they call this abhinivesha, which is called clinging to life, which is one of the obstructions in our spiritual life. It's caused by having experienced experienced death so many times. Why does even an ant fear death? We see all living beings trying to avoid death. So this is another evidence for reincarnation. Swami Vivekananda points out, how does a duck hatched by a chicken, you take a duck's egg and you put it under a chicken, and egg will hatch, but a, a chicken doesn't hatch, a duck hatches. And what does the duck do, the duckling? It runs for the water. And the chicken becomes very disturbed. My, my chick is running towards the water. It's going to drown. But no, the duck knows that it's a duck. The duck knows it's not a chicken. How does it know? How does it know to run to water? People say instinct. Swami Vivekananda says, right, so what is instinct? Where did the instinct come from? Repeated action, repeated births, repeated lives. There's the question of child prodigies. We all have heard of certain children who come into this world with amazing abilities. How can a child of five years old play a musical instrument with the ability almost of an adult? How is it possible? Take the case of Mozart, for instance. His first published piece, a piano piece, was written when he was five years old in 1761. And by the time he was 12 years old, 12 now, just a kid. He had composed 10 major symphonies and was performing for the courts around Europe. Mendelssohn, another one. By the time he had reached his 18th year, he had composed 13 string symphonies, four operas, one full-scale symphony, various instrumental concertos, chamber music, choral works, major piano sonatas, smaller piano pieces. Incredible. How can it be? 
In the Indian musical tradition, there's a strong belief that we come again and again as musicians also. In fact, one friend of ours, he is a, a student of the tabla. And uh, sorry to say, he's not really that good. His music teacher told him, this is your first birth as a tabla player. Ne next birth, you'll be better. Hmm? So he's sticking with it. He's very sincere and he loves it. So what are the objections to reincarnation? Why do people say, no, I don't think so? Well, well, of course, the first obvious reason is we don't remember them. Swami Vivekananda points out that what to speak of our past lives, we don't remember most of this life. Then the other answer is some people do remember. We do remember. In the Yoga Sutra, the uh, yoga tradition gives a clue as to how one can remember by focusing on the tendencies one finds in one's mind, on the, what's called the samskaras, the tendencies built up over previous births, those tendencies which manifest in this life as certain likes and certain dislikes, certain aptitudes and certain inaptitudes. If we focus deeply on these tendencies, these samskaras, that will lead us to realize what our previous births were. Now, this is something for advanced yogis who can fully concentrate their minds on this kind of thing. So by perceiving these impressions comes the knowledge of a past life. Swami Vivekananda was asked, do you remember your past lives? He said, yes, I can remember. I do remember. But I choose not to say anything about it. Because, well, we'll get to that. Another objection. It's not in our scriptures. The Bible doesn't talk about it. Quran doesn't talk about it. In Western religions, it really contradicts some of the theology. I don't want to go into a big discussion about this, but traditional Christian and Muslim theologies are that we are resurrected. The whole idea that Christ has died for our sins and we, we don't have to suffer for our sins anymore and we shall be resurrected on the day of resurrection in this body. This body will somehow be resurrected. So obviously this contradicts the doctrine of reincarnation would, doesn't sit well with that kind of theology. Though we do find hints of reincarnation in both the Bible and the Quran. We do find the hints. In perhaps the only area of agreement between traditional Western religion and modern science, modern science also rejects the idea of reincarnation naturally because how is it possible? What we are is just a product of our body, our biology, our, our consciousness, everything in our minds. It's all just a result of uh, neurotransmitters bouncing around in the neurons in the brain. That's it. When the brain dies, that's it. It's over. Curtain falls. Vedanta rejects this, of course. It's interesting that considering that the dominant religion in the United States is Christianity and that the dominant worldview is scientific materialism, uh, that there is a fairly high belief in reincarnation. The polls from 1968 to 2011, 15 to 25% of Americans said they believe that we do have past lives, that the reincarnation is true. And in 2011... 15% of Protestants, 24% of Catholics, and 29% of black Protestants, only 10% of white evangelicals believed in reincarnation. It's interesting to, to uh, look at these kind of poll numbers. Let's turn now to some kind of evidence that we would be able to find ourselves in this uh, right in front of us. First is psychic readings. Probably some of us have been to psychics who have told us, well, in your past life you were this, or in your past life you were that. This may have some validity. However, one researcher into past lives, he went to 10 different psychics and had 10 past life readings. And in not one of them was there any relation. They were all different. And not only were they different, but a number of them were at the same time periods, they were different. So that was not, not perhaps a scientific study, but at least it suggests that psychic readings are probably pretty unreliable. There may be some rare exceptions. Edgar Cayce may be one exception. He is a famous uh, mystic and psychic. 
re- he would go into a kind of trance, and he w- himself wouldn't even remember the trance, and he would give readings of previous lives, and would explain that the entanglements and difficulties that people are explaining in their present life were mirroring entanglements and difficulties that they had had with those same individuals in previous lives. And it makes fascinating reading. His psychic readings often helped people to heal their relationships, or at least to understand them, understand the roots of the friction and the heartache that they were experiencing with people. And he would say that we incarnate or reincarnate together with, he would call it a soul group, that we we incarnate together. The people who are in our family this life were probably, we incarnated with them before, though not necessarily in the same relations. So this gives real food for thought. If we have real issues with a person, a spouse, an ex-spouse, a a child, a a parent, a mother-in-law, uh, this may not be the first time we are experiencing these problems with that individual. It may not be the first time. So it gives us real food for thought. Maybe we ought to uh, take the bull by the horns and face the problems rather than trying to run away from them because you can't run away from your problems if Edgar Casey is right. So he gives a lot of satisfying explanations. However, they are not verifiable. There have been no cases where a psychic said, oh, you were so-and-so in your past life, and we can go to the historical records and find the name and verify it. No, this doesn't happen. So it's still a big question mark. It's interesting. It's a question mark. Second, past life regression. I'm, I'm imagining some of you have undergone past life regression. I tried it with a YouTube video. Uh, no, nothing, nothing happened to me. I thought if I'm going to speak about it, I should try it once. Uh, Nothing happened, but there seems to be some validity to it. There's a psychiatrist named Brian Weiss who wrote the book Many Lives, Many Masters, and he wrote a number of other books. He had a patient who had a lot of anxiety in her life, crippled by numerous anxieties. He began to use hypnosis to try to uncover the sources of the trauma that he felt was causing these anxieties. And they were coming up with nothing and coming up with nothing, and finally he told her in deep hypnosis go back now to the time when this anxiety has its root. And suddenly she began talking about something which was clearly not from this lifetime. It was from a past lifetime. Brian Weiss himself was a big skeptic in reincarnation. And yet he could not deny, as they uncovered event after event in different previous lives, including tragic and painful deaths, and then those anxieties started resolving themselves. She started being healed. She even began to recall some of the in-between states, between different lives, what happened in between. And during those states, she told him some facts that nobody could know. Nobody from ordinary sources, extremely personal details of his life that nobody could know. So this is what gave him the faith that there is something to this. So it's a fascinating study, fascinating read, people who can, through hypnosis, remember their past lives. However, up till now, none of these types of memories have been verified. That, oh, I was such and such a person, and finding the person, finding the deals, it hasn't happened. And also, it has been pointed out by critics that memories produced under hypnosis are unreliable. They have been shown to be unreliable. They are intensely vivid, and they may be partially true, but they're not generally accepted in courts of law. In fact, witnesses who have been hypnotized are often discounted in courts of law because of this, because uh, they're unreliable. So they may be a kind of mixture of real memories and unconscious desires and fears and, and all of that. So this is still not quite satisfying. But now we can turn to young children who remember past lives. This is more common than I realized. It's actually quite common that young children, from about the age that they are able to speak, begin talking about a past life. I was such and such a person. My name was such and such. My parents were such and such. I did such and such. Fascinatingly, these can be verified, and many of them have been verified. Not five or ten, not a few dozen, hundreds 
hundreds of cases of children who remember past lives have been verified. The name foremost in this study is Dr. Ian Stevenson, who was a psychiatrist, medical doctor who turned to this area of research. He worked for decades at the University of Virginia. He re recently left the body, I think in uh, 2007, and his students are continuing the work of studying methodically, scientifically, very carefully these cases, ruling out possible fraud and other sources by which a child might come to know facts about a previous person. So in a typical case of a child remembering a past life, a child at a very young age insists to his or her parents that he or she is actually someone else, has other parents, perhaps even has a wife or a husband or other children. And the child displays specific knowledge, specific knowledge about this previous lifetime, this personality, including the profession, names of people, important incidents in the life, the manner of death, and also, more importantly, displays behavior which matches the previous personality. For instance, liking or disliking for certain kinds of food or certain people, acting like adults, behaving with persons. Very often, the children, after repeatedly begging their parents, they are brought to the previous place, and they point out here is the house, and they meet the people, and they can recognize the people, and they address the people in many languages. As you know, uh, we have formal terms of address and informal terms of address, and a child would address an adult using the formal term. But here we find a child addressing an unknown adult with the informal terms of address, using the nicknames that the previous personality had for that person. So in this way, Ian Stevenson calls these kinds of cases verified, that there's very strong evidence that the child is displaying both memories and behavior which match a previous personality. And he can find no reasonable explanation except for reincarnation. Especially convincing are the kinds of information the child has which only the previous personality could have. Say, for instance, uh, one girl who remembered lending money to her husband before she died. And nobody else knew about this. The husband would be terribly embarrassed to tell anybody of that fact. And yet, when he was asked about it, he admitted that, yes, it was true. Uh, another girl, as a, the previous lifetime, had buried money at a certain place. Well, they went to dig it up, and it wasn't there. Then they confessed that, yes, it had been there. We dug it up already. Those kinds of things. So Stevenson and his colleagues studied many such cases in disparate cultures, including India, Burma, Thailand, Sri Lanka, Lebanon, Turkey, West Africa, Pacific Northwest, and later they also took up cases in Europe and Brazil. They found more cases in cultures where reincarnation is widely accepted. Probably they surmised because a child speaking about a past life is not immediately met with complete skepticism because reincarnation is accepted in the culture. In America, for instance, if a child starts speaking of reincarnation, mostly it, I was someone in a previous life, it's your imagination, it's your fantasy. Now, when Stevenson started publishing his reports, naturally, as we could expect, he was met with strong skepticism. Mainstream scientists are completely unwilling even to consider the evidence I, I should say probably not just unwilling, but actually unable. They're unable to consider the evidence because their assumptions are so strong. Their assumptions about the nature of consciousness, simply a product of matter, and personality, also a product of matter, define their whole worldview. So they, they can't even consider the possibility. So they just discounted must be fraud or must be fake or must be made up. They have to willfully ignore the evidence, though, because the evidence now is very strong. So, of course, one of the main objections to Stevenson's work, fraud, you're making it up. Well, the extent of his research, including multiple interviews with dozens of people, which all corroborate the story, for a family to concoct such a fraud is practically impossible. So he's discounted these. Another suggested cause, cryptomnesia, forgetting that they knew. A child learned all about a previous person and then forgot that he learned about it and then was able to tell about it. But he's already telling about it from the age two. So how is that possible? Moreover, displaying behaviors. How can they learn the behaviors? How can a 
young Thai child loves sticky rice. The Thai don't eat sticky rice. But he's remembering a lifetime of a Laotian family in a nearby village. And Laotians love sticky rice. So Stevenson rules out uh, several causes for these memories. He rules out inheriting these memories from parents, as most of the cases don't happen in the same family. Thought transference or telepathy, because these behaviors are also displayed, so it can't be just thoughts and ideas. So the best explanation seems to be either reincarnation or possession. Now, usually at least a few months up to a number of years pass between the death of the previous personality and the child who's born and remembers the uh, birth in the present body. So on occasion, the death happens only a few months before the birth. And there have been one or two fascinating cases of the death occurring after the birth of the child who remembers the previous lifetime. I'll describe one in a moment. There's one other fascinating area which Stevenson has studied is cases of birthmarks and birth defects. And Stevenson regarded these as perhaps the most convincing. Physical marks on the body of the new personality matching such marks or wounds on the body of the previous personality. Often marks from fatal wounds. And he's photographed these. A strange birthmark across the throat. The Previous personality, his throat had been slit and died that way. A mark on the chin and another one on the top of the head. Previous personality had been shot. The bullet entered the chin, exited at the top of the head. These two marks on the child who's remembering that lifetime. Birth defect of missing fingers. A child was born without fingers. Previous lifetime, he remembered someone was swinging a sword and chopped off his fingers. He put up his hand to block the sword and the fingers were chopped off. Next blow chopped off his head. Yes, e even birthmarks and moles matching the birthmarks and moles on the remembered previous personality. Diseases in the present body which match those in the previous body. So a fascinating, uh, fascinating study. Xenoglossy, being able to speak a language which wasn't learned in this life. The young girl... Swaranalata from Madhya Pradesh, a Hindi-speaking area, who could sing a Bengali song, a Tagore song. It was recognized. They, Bengalis were called. It's a song in Bengali. No one around could recognize it. They found some Bengalis and said, oh, that's a Bengali song. It's a song by Tagore. We know that song. And she did a little song and dance with it. She remembered a previous life as Bia from Bangladesh. They were not able to find Bia. It was not quite verified, but it was authentic in that she remembered so many details. They could find the records of those family members who she remembered, only the names of men only had been recorded, so her name had not been recorded. Common factors in the lives of these children who remember previous lifetimes. One very common factor is violent death. Children or adults who have died a violent or untimely death, or they had unfinished business, very strong sense of unfinished business. I wasn't finished with my life. I wasn't finished with a project in the previous personality. So, something to think about. Finish your business. Anyhow, it, it's fascinating reading. Typically, the subjects, these children, start reporting these memories in infancy, when they first begin to talk, even before then sometimes. And they also typically begin to forget their memories. They begin to forget them, stop talking about them between the ages of five and eight. And later in life, many of them have completely forgotten. They may know that they did remember, and they know that they've talked about it, but they don't remember. Still, the behavioral traits remain. The liking for sticky rice, for instance. I'd like to just mention briefly this case of Jasbir uh, Jat. Jasbir Jat, a young child of three and a half years, and he had smallpox. And he became very sick, and the parents thought he died. And usually infants in India are buried rather than cremated, so they waited till morning to bury the child's body. But in the morning, he revived. Turns out he wasn't dead, and so they nursed him back to health. And after some weeks, he regained his ability to speak. And yet, they found 
He's not talking that he's Jasbir. He, now he's Shobharam. A new personality had taken over the body. And Ian Stevenson researched this case. This Shobharam was found. The, the records for him were found. He died when he was 22 years old. Jasbir was from a relatively lower caste. Shobharam had been a Brahmin. Now the, the Brahmins will not eat food cooked by a lower caste. Jasbir, this young boy, he refused to eat the food cooked by his parents because he felt, I'm a Brahmin. How can I eat this food cooked by this? It's a pathetic uh, tradition, but anyhow, it is what it is, and it gives us this beautiful evidence that he, he would have died except a kindly a neighbor, a Brahmin lady, started cooking for the boy so that he could eat. He uh, remembered that in the in-between state, after being killed, he was poisoned. Somebody owed him money. And uh, that person fed him some poisoned sweets and he died. So in the in-between state, he was advised to take cover in this body, in this body called Jasbir. So he visited his previous family. He wanted to spend time there. For a long time, he was depressed. Later, as he grew up, he outgrew his depression and he became more or less reconciled to his new life. But still certain behaviors remained. He continued to wear the Brahminical thread, the sacred thread which Brahmins wear, which non-Brahmins do not wear. He continued to wear that thread. So now some reflections. Stevenson's research and those who follow him provide amazing corroboration of the Vedantic conception of reincarnation. These are cases of ordinary people with extraordinary experiences. People like you and me. Cases studied systematically with rigorous methods designed to examine all possible ways the child could have displayed the memories and behaviors and finding reincarnation to be the best explanation considering all the data. So really, it's a very strong evidence that reincarnation, at least sometimes, does happen. And it throws a real wrench into the nature versus nurture debate, the old debate, how much is genes and how much is environment that goes into making up who we are. This adds a whole new component, a whole new component, the influence of a previous birth. So uh, the previous personality even physically can affect the new body. We thought that the body is entirely determined by genes. But here you have birth defects, which are clearly coming not through genetic factors, but through, from the Vedantic's perspective, we would say that those injuries were carried through in the subtle body and manifested in the gross body. As we under have the Vedantic understanding that it's the subtle body which creates the gross body. So we find... Also, this idea that the tendencies we have in this life, the behavioral traits, our likes and dislikes, are coming not just from our childhood, but actually come from birth after birth. And not only that, of course, but that gives us the power to determine our future. This is always where Vedanta will focus. If our current personality is dependent on our past, then our future is dependent on our present. So we find, for instance, tendencies towards spiritual life. These carry over. Uh, Arjuna asks Sri Krishna, well, you talk about self-realization. Suppose uh, somebody doesn't manage to get self-realization, doesn't manage to attain enlightenment. What happens then? It all is lost. They struggled hard, but they didn't make it. What happens then? Sri Krishna assures him, no, nothing is lost. Those who are unable to attain me in this life, the next life they will be born in the homes of the pure and prosperous, where they will take up their practice again. Or if they're very fortunate, they will be born in the homes of spiritual seekers, in the home of yogis who are already doing spiritual practices. So they'll be put right into the perfect environment for taking up that spiritual practice. And Stevenson's research corroborates this, that children who remember previous lives in which the personality was very pious, very religious, also manifest those same behaviors. So the power of samskaras, the power of these tendencies that we build up through our actions, it's so powerful. I'd like to give an example that I just experienced in July. Every July, I go to Tennessee with two other monks and a group of devotees for a retreat. 
and we rent the same cabin and Swami Nishpapananda and I share a bedroom and we of course share the bathroom and there are two drawers in the bathroom and Nishpapananda he always would put his toilet articles in the top drawer of the bathroom and I'd always put my toiletries in the bottom two drawers. Swami Ishtananda would keep them in his room. He was right next to the bathroom. We were coming from upstairs. So for the past five, six years, Nishpapanandaji has always put his things in the top drawer. I've put them in the bottom drawer. Now, for some reason this summer, we don't know why, Swami Nishpapananda decided to put his things in the bottom drawer. So when I came and I opened the bottom drawer, oh, his things are there. Okay, so I put my things in the top drawer. Fine, no problem. Every time I went to the bathroom to, f- to get my things, what did I do? I opened the bottom drawer. And I found, oh, Swami's things are there. Close it, open the top drawer. Again and again, time and again, I was opening the wrong drawer. Just one week a year, for five or six years, I was putting my things in the bottom drawer, and I changed it, and I couldn't unlearn the habit. So I asked the Swami, what happened? I see what's happening? And he said, yeah, I also find I keep opening the top drawer and finding your toilet articles. So this is the power of samskaras. This is the power of repeated action. So we are responsible for our own destinies. Swami Vivekananda says, it is the one theory that does not lay the blame of all our weakness upon somebody else. We reap what we sow. We are the makers of our own fate. No one else has the blame, none has the praise. The wind is blowing, those vessels whose sails are unfurled catch it and go forward on their way. But those which have their sails furled do not catch the wind. Is that the fault of the wind? Finally, I'd like to mention that one aspect of these cases of children who remember past lives, which actually fascinates me, is that they also forget them. They almost invariably also forget their past lives and go on with their new life all the details of their previous life, which they were remembering, all their likes and dislikes, their friends and family, their career, their accomplishments, the triumphs and disappointments, everything they held dear in that previous life, it vanishes. Where does it go? First, they try to hold on to them. They often want to go back to their previous families, and yet then they forget. All that is left is a trace in their personality traits. And so is the case with us. Have we lived before? We don't remember. Maybe one or two of us do remember. I would bet most of us we don't remember. We had a whole full lifetime. What happened to that? What happened to all our beloved family members and children and parents and all our activities and accomplishments? And in this, our own life, our present life, how much we like our, or maybe some of us don't like, but still feel we are our bodies, how much emphasis we put on our bodies. All our favorite things, our likes and our dislikes, those things we don't like, our dear friends, our beloved spouses and children, our careers, our accomplishments and our failures. In the next life, will we remember those? If we come again, what happens to all of that? What happens to me? I think we won't remember. So then who am I? Who am I? This is the question roared out by the Vedantic sages. This is the question we should ask. Who am I? If all these things I hold so dear, if they are just going to evaporate, if I'm not going to remember them, it's as if they never happened just leaving traces in my personality. Who am I? Just a bundle of memories which will be forgotten? Who is it? Who is it that remembers? And who is it that forgets? What is the thread? What is the thread sewing together all the experiences in this life? What is the thread sewing together all the previous lifetimes? What is that? Who is that? Life after life, birth after birth, what ties it all together? Like pages of a book being turned, says Swami Vivekananda. Pages of a book being turned are these lives passing before the eyes of the soul. 
the soul, the self, the Atman is not born and it does not die. Only bodies are born and bodies die. Na jayate mriyate vakadachid nayam bhutva bhavita vanabhuyah ajo nityashashvato yam purano nahanyate hanyamane sharire roars Sri Krishna to Arjuna. This Atman is never born. It never dies. Nor having once been does it again cease to be. Unborn, eternal, permanent and primeval. It is not slain when the body is slain. But alas, we do not know it. We take the changing bodies to be ourselves. Alas, says Swami Vivekananda, you, the infinite dreamer, dreaming finite dreams. Vivekananda says, coming and going is all pure delusion. The soul never comes or goes, in his famous letter to Mrs. Olibull. Where is the place to which it shall go when all space is in the soul? When shall be the time for entering and departing when all time is in the soul? The earth moves, causing the illusion of the movement of the sun, but the sun does not move. So Prakriti or Maya or nature is moving, changing, unfolding veil after veil, turning over leaf after leaf of this grand book, while the witnessing soul drinks in knowledge, unmoved, unchanged. This brings us to the fundamental idea in Vedanta, the fundamental mood, the fundamental tenor of the whole Vedantic life, which is, all right, reincarnation may be true, but how many times do I have to play this old round of smiles and tears again and again? I've had enough of it. I want out. I want to know who I am. I want to know that which is and which does not die and which does not get enmeshed in all these different complications every lifetime again and again. Realizing that one gets free, longing for freedom, longing for liberation. This to me is the real value of contemplating this reincarnation and looking at these past lives and seeing again, am I to do it all again? But I don't remember the last time, yet there's these tenets again? No! Who am I? Let me know who I am. Let me find out. Let me discover that I am pure consciousness and bliss, that I am eternal, that I am not a body, that I am not even a mind. I am that infinite reality beyond all space and time and of the very nature of infinite peace and bliss. Let me know that. I'd like to close with another reading from Swami Vivekananda. Each one of us, he says, each one of us will get back this memory of previous lives in that life in which he will become free. Then alone you will find that this world is but a dream. Then alone you will realize in the soul of your soul that you are but actors and the world is a stage. Then alone will the idea of non-attachment come to you with a power of thunder then all this thirst for enjoyment, this clinging to life and this world will vanish forever. Then the mind will see clear as daylight how many times all these existed for you, how many millions of times you had fathers and mothers, sons and daughters, husbands and wives, relatives and friends, wealth and power. They came and they went. How many times you were on the topmost crest of that wave and how many times you were down at the bottom of despair. When memory will bring all these to you, then alone will you stand as a hero and smile when the world frowns upon you. Then alone will you stand up and say, I care not for thee even, O death, what terrors hast thou for me? The infinite future is before you. And you must always remember that each word, thought, and deed lays up a store for you, and that as the bad thoughts and bad works are ready to spring upon you like tigers, so also there is the inspiring hope that the good thoughts and good deeds are ready with the power of a hundred thousand angels to defend and protect you forever.
I will close with a chant. Om Brahma Varunendra Rudra Marutaha Stunvanti Divyaistavai Vedai Sangapada Gramopanishadai Gayantiyam Samaga Dhyanavastita Tadgatena Manasa Pashyantiyam Yogino Yasyantanavidu Sura Suragana Devayatasmai Namaha Om Shanti 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 Our salutations to him who is the truth of life and existence and whom the sages call by various names. Our salutations to him whose glory is sung in the sacred hymns of the various scriptures of the world, but whose limitless and infinite grandeur no mortal mind can comprehend. Our salutations to him on whom the devotees meditate in the shrine of their hearts and realize his ineffable presence in their deepest contemplations. May he illumine our understanding and prompt our minds to the path of truth and righteousness. May he reveal himself unto our souls and dispel the gloom of delusion, fear, doubt, and darkness. Om, peace, peace, peace be unto us and unto all living beings. You've been listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Thanks for listening.